Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about cell phone videos and how they became the key to the new protest movement and the new protest journalism. For that, we turn to Alyssa Richardson. She teaches journalism and communication at the USC Annenberg School, and she's written a terrific new book, Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. The book explores the lives of 15 mobile journalist activists who documented the Black Lives Matter using only their smartphones and Twitter from 2013 to 2017. Alyssa Richardson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. Well, let's start with the cell phone video of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. It's probably the most widely distributed video in you know human history. It's the piece of film with the most massive political effects. It's so horrible. And there are so many more videos like it shot over the last decade. What do you think about how easy it is right now to find video of Black people being murdered? That's a great question. And I think it's too easy to find these videos. In fact, I spoke up about this in June when I began to do some research into where these videos end up across the internet kind of landscape. And what I found is that not only do they exist in places like the dark web, but they are easily searchable through search engines like Google and even in our most respected stock media uh, reserves. So one could, for example, easily look up Trayvon Martin in any of these stock image services to which many newspapers and magazines subscribe and find post-mortem pictures of Trayvon Martin. You can find any number of these high-profile videos of fatal police encounters that involve Black people. And I was troubled by that because I knew that that same treatment um, was not reserved for white victims. Everyone dies. We know this. But when white people die, there is a certain veneer of dignity that is allowed that's not allowed for Black people. For example, when I went back and said, well, maybe I'll be able to find um, Daniel Pearl's video. Daniel Pearl was a journalist who was beheaded. And that footage existed online for a very long time. And then it was scrubbed from the internet, and rightfully so. If I think about 9-11, which affected a large number of white people, one of our most heinous attacks here on American soil and a tragic day for our country, um, there are very little videos and pictures that exist online now. They're very hard to find of the people who were jumping from those buildings and had to make that tough decision of whether to stay inside and burn or be forced out, as we eventually called it. 
Um, there used to be a lot of, of gory photographs. They've been scrubbed from the internet. And then when we think about any of the number of mass shootings that affect large groups of white people, for example, in Las Vegas, where you had a lone gunman who was randomly attacking a music festival, and there was footage of people running for their lives and falling down, never to give, get up again. And that footage has been scrubbed from the internet. So when I think of all of those, I have to think really far back to think of the last time I saw a white person dying on the news. And the most I could come up with was Kent State. And I said, that's a problem. Why is it that we're so comfortable seeing this violence against Black bodies? Is it because we're so conditioned from slavery on, from the pictures of Whit Pete with the scars on his back, to the civil rights movement of Black bodies being tossed in the air with fire hoses, to um, even now Rodney King in the more modern era of filming, to now with smartphones, are we just used to seeing Black people being traumatized in that way? And I thought I need to speak up and say something because it's not okay. I was, I should say, comforted by the fact that when a man was shot in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it has been very difficult for me to find the full footage of what ha happened to Jacob Blake. And I would like to think that's because I've been telling everyone who will listen this summer that we have to equate these videos to lynching photographs. We have to elevate them there so that they exist in this sacred place that we look upon or gaze upon with solemn respect and not while we're just having our morning coffee or looping this with the casual air of a sports highlight. And then there's the issue of who shot these videos, who shot the George Floyd video. Let's stick with that one. It's so traumatic for us to watch it. What could have been like for her to shoot it? What do we know about her? Darnella Frazier is a 17-year-old girl. So that's the thing that is perhaps most remarkable about this is that she had her iPhone 11 in the you know wrong place for anyone as a parent. I would say wrong place at the right time. But for what America needed to see, it was the right place at the right time. And she knew to not have any additional commentary. She's not talking through it. She's holding the camera really steady. And she is making sure that she's capturing the entire moment with the really calm, cool, and collective reserve of a filmmaker who is doing this in one shot. So I thought that this was a much older person at first who must have done this so that there wasn't any quaking or wavering in the arms or anything. But when I found out it was a teenager, I think that's what really saddened me the most because these witnesses are becoming younger and younger. For example, you had in this case of, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, three young sons who watched their father being uh, gunned down <sighs> from the back seat. And that's not the first time we've seen a child in the back seat. You know, Diana Reynolds was in the back seat when Philando Castile was killed. She was <sighs> four. So when we think about why Darnella Frazier was conditioned at 17 years old to pull out that smartphone, we have to think of what these little kids are already seeing and how they're already growing up with a consciousness that they must have that device charged at all times and they must have the media literacy to know how to operate it um, within seconds because anything could happen. And then there must be trauma that follows. I mean, it's traumatic for us to look at this, to be a couple of feet away from a human being being murdered and not be able to do anything about it. That's got to be traumatic. 
Very. And I think there's pros and cons of it. You know, I write about in the book that this is the first time where African Americans can bear witness in real time to someone who looks like them being harmed. You know, I talk about these three overlapping eras of, of domestic terror against Black people in the United States. And the first being slavery. Well, slaves couldn't look at other slaves being punished lest they incur the wrath of their master themselves. So they often looked away. And if you think about lynching photographs, I invoke those again, because the mobs that were there didn't have Black people on the fringes kind of huddled and crying. They were at home, presumably hoping that their loved one would return to them. In many cases, that was not what happened. But this is different. This is a different time, a different era and paradigm, and that Black people can be there in real time if they choose to be, if they can bear it to say, I'm not going to let anyone make up a reason why you died. I'm not going to let them forget your name. I'm going to stay here with you in this moment so that you don't die alone, so that you don't die nameless, and most of all, so that you don't die with blame. There's not any victim blaming that will happen on my watch. And so I think that's a profound shift when we think about the role that smartphones have played. And that trauma is amplified by that real-time exposure. So there's pros and cons there. And let's stick with the lynching photos for a minute. These were commercially produced, sold as postcards. Often it was a group portrait of hundreds of white people, you know, grinning underneath the bodies of black men, these had a very different intention from what we're seeing today. Remind us about what lynching photos were for. Yes, lynching photos were celebratory at first. I'm so glad you brought that up, John, because in the book I talk about this concept called black witnessing. Black witnessing is different because it is defiant and it is an, it is filled with or imbued with um, self-preservation and protection and trying to make sure that that person is seen and documented properly for future, hopefully, uh, acts of justice. But white witnessing in this context is different because the person who is armed with a camera often is celebrating. That's why the third person in the Ahmaud Arbery case was arrested. He was not left alone to his own devices when they found out that he filmed uh, the actual hunting down of Ahmad Arbery as he jogged through his community. He was arrested as well. So he wasn't engaging in black witnessing in the same way. The gazes are different. And when we think about the function that lynching photography served as these kind of attaboys, um, and on the back you would often see, look, we had a barbecue last weekend. Um, Those kinds of of, uh, celebrations in print are actually what uh, fueled the Comstock Act, right? The Comstock Act basically Mm -hmm. said, you cannot mail these things using the U.S. Postal Service anymore as a postcard. It needs to be in an envelope or not at all. And so that kind of layer of decency um, that our government uh, took on during that time was actually in response to lynching photographs. So they have a long and storied history and looking at the gazes in terms of the white photographer and the black photographer are essential here. And there's one other very famous picture of a black body and that's from the mid 50s, the body of Emma Till lying in state in the coffin that his mother, she said, I want everyone to see what they did to my boy. He had been lynched on a visit to his cousins in Mississippi in the mid-50s. And that was on the cover of Jet Magazine, 
a whole generation of black people were traumatized by seeing that picture. And it remains an important part of this history. Absolutely. In many cases, a lot of people say that Trayvon Martin is the modern Emmett Till. And my first job as a journalist was in a magazine, a storied magazine, which was Jet. And I worked at Jet Magazine and actually had the privilege of of going up into that, again, this hallowed space, this shadow archive um, that had the Emmett Till photograph and to gaze upon that for the first time because I'd really avoided it all of my college career, and I talk about this in the book, that it just felt wrong to look at it, even when we were in African-American studies class. I just couldn't bear to look at it. But I thought, well, I have this job at Jet Magazine now. I need to really get past the trauma and understand the role that this storied publication had in the civil rights movement. And I was really aghast when I saw that. And I think that a lot of people were galvanized then. They're galvanized now. And his death gave us a template around which many Black people rally around the safety and sanctity of Black boys. And so when you see people like Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or Jordan Davis being killed, it just harkens back his name all of the time. I think we have new templates that are emerging too now, though. In addition to Emmett Till, uh, we now have this Say Her Name movement, which is an incredible parallel movement, which highlights that a lot of the police brutality that occurs against African-American women is private and it's more quiet. It occurs off camera. It is what happened to Sandra Bland in 2015 when she died mysteriously in that Waller County Jail. We still don't know. And her family maintains that she would not have hanged herself. But her death actually gave us kind of what Emmett Till gave the last generation. It gave us a template around which we can now say a Tatiana Jefferson's name and Breonna Taylor's name. And Sandy Bland is really the reason why you're seeing Breonna Taylor on the cover of Oprah Magazine and Vanity Fair and painted by the venerable Amy Sherrill, the same artist who painted Michelle Obama for the National Portrait Gallery. All of these things have converged because of what we've witnessed through smartphones and because of people lifting their voices on social media. So the first part of your book and the first part of this story is about the photographs taken on smartphones. And then the other part is the distribution, which is remarkably almost all on Twitter. You say Twitter is now like an ad hoc black news wire service that bypasses the gatekeeping role of the news media. How big is Twitter for the movement for black lives today? Twitter is an incredible force. There's been so much great work done by scholars like Andre Brock and Meredith Clark and Dean Freelon that have all shown that Black Twitter is an incredibly influential force in terms of what trends at the national level and the mainstream. And Black Twitter is really comprised of several different groups of Black people, right? It's not just one type of Black person. There are activists there. There are academics there. There are grassroots people who um, are really thinking about getting into activism, but not quite sure. And so maybe they propagate a message along before they actually jump right in on those front lines. And so there's all kinds of folks who are sharing ideas. And there are some leaders, you know, our, our research showed 
in the book that there were hubs of information, the people who rose to the top as the influencers who were doing the heavy lifting of publishing most of the stories. And then you had this incredible web of people also who were assigned stories at uh, local levels. So I saw a lot of activity in terms of these big names kind of farming out stories to smaller chapters or people who had boots on the ground to ask them, what are you seeing there? So for example, um, I interviewed Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and she couldn't be in all places at all times, right? So sometimes I would see on her uh, social media platform questions to different chapters, different BLM chapters of what's going on in your city tonight? What event do you want me to amplify? Or if a specific killing had just come to the fore, there was this um, amazing vetting service that they had to make sure that it wasn't a hoax and to check in to see if anyone really knew this person. And if so, who is closest? Who can go and do some live streaming? Who can fill in some text for us? And so again, you see this these patterns of people who are behaving much like journalists in these foreign bureaus who are hiring stringers, if you will, to bring back things to the big publication. And so that's a messy process. It, it wasn't always as smooth as I'm describing it. There's some arguing sometimes. There are many different organizations working under the Black Lives Matter umbrella. And I think that is also fascinating to realize is that when we think of the civil rights movement, we often think of it as this monolithic movement that was headed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for example. But there was really many leaders, SCLC, SNCC, NAACP, CORE, the Urban League, all of these different organizations were working for similar purposes, but they had different leaders and different missions and approaches. We're seeing that now too. And this research really helped me uh, elucidate the process of who works for whom, what causes do they hone in on. Some are doing prison abolition, others are doing Black feminist movements, which involve getting women the proper um, prenatal and postnatal care to improve the life expectancy of Black women after they give birth. So there's all kinds of things that are under this Black Lives Matter umbrella that really grew um, after we started talking about police brutality. And that conversation expanded to what does brutality look like in other arenas like education or public health. And that's what we're seeing now as COVID-19 continues to ravage the world. Uh, African-Americans are still under fire in terms of being disproportionately uh, exposed to this disease and dying from it. So when we think about Black Lives Matter, it has really become this large movement that involves many different sectors of inequality as they touch each other. And it also involves many different Black activists who are all vying for the microphone at any given time. And the communication that they come up with is sophisticated. When it works, it is a thing of beauty in terms of its coordination, impact, and reach. And when it's imperiled, when they are trying to still argue amongst themselves about what's the best way forward, it still creates a national discourse that allows us to question some things that we may have taken as a given for many, many centuries. Alyssa Richardson, her book is Bearing Witness While Black, African-Americans, Smartphones in the New Protest Journalism. Alyssa, thanks for your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. 
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.